will hopefully not to be two Corinthians chapter one, and I want to begin reading verse eighteen and reading through verse thirty-one. Amen. 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 All right. Are we ready? You're going to preach with me today. Now you can make it easy on the preacher. You can make it hard on the preacher. And the harder you make it on the preacher, the longer he preaches. So do yourselves a favor, all right? If you make it easy on me, we'll be out of here in a couple hours. So guess what if you don't? (laughs) I'm teasing. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God bless you. You may be seated. And the end of the story is not written yet. Let me just underscore the reading of the word of the Lord today by telling you that God delights in taking nothing and making something out of it. When he wanted to create the worlds, the galaxies, the universe, the stars, he reached over and got a handful of nothing and made everything that is in existence today. When God needs a tool for his service, we are reminded throughout Scripture that he usually looks for something that is common to use. He doesn't reach for a knife that is factory sharpened. He prefers to hone his own edge out of rough metal. And so when Samuel went to the house of Jesse in search of God's choice for a king over Israel, he wound up anointing with oil the runt of the litter. David probably would have been voted the most unlikely to succeed. All the other boys in Jesse's household had kingly appearances, but the youngest son had red hair and freckles, a simple shepherd boy that had nothing but a slingshot and um, and a harp. Yet when God transformed the life of David, he became a founder of the founder of a monarchy. 
the reorganizer of Israel's religious worship, the preeminent hero of Israel, ruler and poet to his people. His dynasty continued on the throne of Judah right up to the captivity, and the promised Messiah was to come through the Davidic line. When God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, he used a man by the name of Moses with halting speech and a crooked staff. The principle of the transformed staff remains absolute throughout time. God is forever transforming the secular into the sacred, storing his heavenly treasures in earthen vessels, touching the common things and causing them to shine for his glory. A ram's horn, an ox goad, an earthen pitcher, a shepherd's sling, a lowly manger, five loaves, and two fishes, an old rugged cross. God delights always in using the foolish to confound the wise. And so it is, God always honors simple things. He honors the man, the woman, who does what needs to be done irregardless of the cost and simply puts his hand to the plow and does not look back. We remember in Scripture that it was the prophet Samuel that, uh, that anointed, the, again, the least likely of Jesse's boys to be king over Israel. And when God needed a man to defeat the Midianites, he turned to a confessed coward hiding behind a wine press and turned Gideon into a mighty man of faith and warrior. We recall from Scripture that it was Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, that became the mother of all Israel, and out of the house of David again would come the Messiah. Remember to, remember to deliver the children of Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh. God used a man that could not speak clearly, and a crude staff in his hand, instead of a powerful figure and a golden scepter. The apostles, the twelve men who turned the world upside down, and upon whom Christ has built his church upon, we are told were unlearned and ignorant men. They were men of common birth, bred fishermen. They had no formal education, and they were not taught by the rabbi. There was no training in natural philosophy, mathematics, or politics, and yet they spoke with such assurance, boldness, and confidence and wisdom that not even the judges of the day could dispute their words. Peter is one of the most colorful and interesting men in the entire New Testament. Not always, he's not always been known as Peter or Petra, but before he met Christ, he was, we are told, as the sand. And so he was weak, shifting, aimless, and drifting. I am not just reading to you today out of some, some historical novel or out of the Scripture but I am, I am pointedly and directly and methodically trying to, trying to express to you the tenor of Scripture and the mind of God as He looks into this world and when He wants to accomplish something, He does not look for the finest and the best and the well-tuned, but He looks for those that says that I am nothing, God, except you touch me with your presence. Let me talk to you just a moment about the man by the name of Peter. I love to read about Peter. Peter is always always a contradiction. Peter is always someone that you're, you're looking at and trying to analyze and scrutinize and say, how did this man that was aimless and shifting and, and wandering become such a dynamite for God? 
And when we look into the characteristics of Peter, we find that he was always drifting. He was always aimless and wandering through life until he met the Messiah. But when Peter met the Lord Jesus Christ, we are told by historians that he was changed from cowardice to courage, from infidelity to fidelity, from unstableness to endurance, from haughtiness to humility, from evil passions to a man, body, soul, and spirit set on fire by God to become one of the greatest apostles of all time. And so we go on and on throughout Scripture. It would not be right for us to close on this segment of this message without one of the most notorious men in the entire New Testament and Scripture. He was a man by the name or known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a man who wrote over one half of the entire New Testament. He was a religious zealot fighting the truth, the most unlikely to ever preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet one of the most pronounced figures of the entire New Testament church. And what about the man by the name of Matthew? We read in the scripture that Matthew was the crooked entrepreneur selling his people and his character for wealth. He, he was a hated tax collector who became the man known as the man with a sleepless pen that recorded the Sermon on the Mount, reported and arranged the parables and transcribed with amazing accuracy the last week of Christ's powerful preaching. The message is simple that I want to bring to you here today. I want to debunk an old theory, a theory that has been spawned off on Americans and Western civilization and culture and people like you and I. You see, I've read all of that to bring you to a point to tell you today that I have an issue with some of the philosophies that are abounding in our generation, in our time, that is simply destroying the lives of countless numbers of men and women and young people. I didn't start yesterday pastoring a church. My wife and I are involved in the lives of a lot of people on a daily basis that, that, that has been, uh, that we have pastored for a number of years. But I have never, never in the 20, 20 something years of pastoring our church in Fort Wayne been involved with so many people who are so confused, so many people who are so lost and mixed up. And I dare say that in this congregation, Today, you see the all-searching, unerring eye of God and the searcher of human hearts has been walking throughout this assembly today. He has seen your worship and he has taken note of your shouting and your praise and your joyful, gleeful attitude. And you look nice today. You've come for Sunday afternoon worship. You've come to the house of God. You put on your Sunday best, but you see that all searching unerring eye of God and the searcher of human hearts has walked where eyes cannot see. He has gone with a stethoscope, cannot pick up movement. He has gone with a doctor's scalpel, cannot cut deep enough. He has ventured into the inner sanctum and the soul of men and women and young people who are here today that even though you put the smile on and you put your best demeanor on when you come to the house of God, 
God. You have walked the course of this world this week. Your shoulders have been stooped and your back has been bent and you could not lift your head because every night you lay your head upon your pillow, the tears stained the sheets and the pillow upon which you lie because you and only you know, sir, and ma'am, the man or the woman that you live with, then the man, the woman that is a part of your makeup and your personality. You see, I want to talk to you about something today that says I've got some good news for you. You don't have to cry yourself asleep at night. You don't have to drag yourself through another day of tedious tasks and chores that burdens you down with the cares of life. You don't have to look at life as a journey from the cradle to the grave and nothing in between with nothing to look forward to in the future. But I'm here to tell you, sir, you're no accident with God. You are planned in the mind of God. You're known in the mind of God. And Jesus loves you with a love that is unconditional and a love that perhaps we cannot understand this afternoon. Let me tell you here today, there are no losers in the building. Because, you see, I want to talk to you about about uh, bloodline. I want to talk to you about your pedigree. I want to talk to you about where you came from, who you are, what you are. Now I've got your attention. Because all of us, all of us, seemingly, we look in the mirror and we say, Why am I who I am? Why do I act the way I act? Why was I born into this into this type of culture why do i look the way i look and so in many respects some things in our lives are predetermined by our DNA and by our genetic coding and some things we cannot help. There are some things that are predetermined such as the pigmentation of our skin, the color of our eyes, the brain cells that we have that to a large degree determines uh, uh, the amount of IQ that we have and possibilities that we have in life. And so we go through life thinking this is who I am and I and, and, and like the psychologists say, we are a strange composite of all the generations that have ever gone before us. What our grandparents were, our great-grandparents, what our parents were is has determined who I am, what I am, how I am. That's already predetermined for me, and I cannot break out of this mold of which I have been cast in. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, has spawned off some, some fantasy junk on our Western civilization that says you're not responsible for your actions because all you do is what you have been given by your biological makeup and your genetics and you are predisposed to be like you are. That is one of the biggest lies that have ever been hatched out of the pits of hell and I have come to address that to you today because there may be just one person here that says I can't help who I am. This is just who I am and I can't break out of this mold. That is wrong. You can break out of that mold. You can be different than you are. You can do better than what you're doing today. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to help each and every one of us with that. Come on, would you put your hands together and worship the Lord? Amen, amen. In our country, in our country, horse racing is a multi-million dollar a year event. 
champion racehorses don't usually just appear out of nowhere. They are usually picked from a careful study of, of bloodlines. A lot of time, effort, and resources go into picking champion racehorses. You don't just understand that when you go out and, and somebody's going to buy a racehorse, they can cost millions of dollars. There are people around us who have racehorses. A man that I know just bought a horse the other day for well over a million dollars. And I'm saying, what in this world? And they bought, as far as I know, sight unseen. You don't just go up to a good-looking horse and say, wow, that's a good-looking horse, and I'm going to enter it into the Kentucky Derby, and, and he's going to be a winner, and we're going to make all kinds of money. No, you might buy a racehorse that you've never seen. Because, you see, racehorses are not what you see on the outside. It's what's in the bloodline, what's on the inside. These horses, racehorses, and champions have been carefully studied and bred and bred and bred for generations. The breeders, the trainers, the veterinarians uh, search the data and the statistics for, for the past 50 or 60 years, we are told, in checking an animal's bloodline to see if it has the blood of a champion. In horse racing, what is called the bloodstock agent focuses attention on the animal's bloodline. He or she will spend months, months, my friends, studying a particular line of horses, researching its lineage. The bloodstock agent will examine how the horse's father fared as a racer, how long his stride was, how fast he could run, what size he was, and on and on. The breeders understand that winners don't randomly happen. Winners are winners. Winning is in the blood. To breed one of these world champion thoroughbreds can cost, just to breed one of them, can cost up to a half of a million dollars. But the owners know that it's on the inside, in his blood. This colt that they're buying has a legacy of champion genes. That's why the owners are not necessarily concerned about the coat's initial weakness. They look at him when it's born, if they do get to see him, and they see the wobbly legs. They see the unsteady uh, gait. They see the small stature. They don't care about what color it is. They don't care how pretty it is. They don't even care how large it is because through the careful study of genetics and the bloodline, they know that down deep inside of that colt, they have a winner. I'm here to tell you not to talk about horses, but I'm here to tell you that that's how God sees us. When we as human beings look at someone, we size them up. We look at them. We study them and we predetermine what they are and sometimes when we get to know that person they fool us completely but God looks down in the inner sanctum of the soul and I'm going to tell you something today God doesn't care what your background is what your pedigree is he doesn't care if you have money don't have money he doesn't care who your parents are he doesn't care what color your skin you have he doesn't care what your name is when God sees you hey you're 
listen to this. I'm talking to somebody because you're here just going through another sermon and you're saying, I've heard all of this before, but let me indelibly print upon, imprint upon the subconscious of some mind and some spirit here today. Look at yourself, sir. You are a winner in the eyes of God. God says, I have put my blood in you. Now, here's a strange thing about it. This is why that when we come to the church and we start living for God, we don't just come up and shake a preacher's hand and join the church and sign the card if we have enough money and say, I'm a member of the church. That's why the Bible says that a man must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. That's why he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Somebody said, now there's an old theological debate, okay? In theology, preachers are always discussing. When is the blood of Christ applied to us? You know, somebody says, says, uh, you know, you know, I, I just, uh, excuse me, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to edit things as I go, but, but somebody says, how does the blood of somebody that died two thousand years ago affect me now? Like Cambry asked me yesterday, she said, "Papa, ask me a question that, uh, ask me a scientific question." And I said, "Okay, baby, let me ask you a scientific question." How can a brown cow eat green grass and give white milk? And she said, because that's the way God made it. I said, right on, baby. Now, now I don't know how blood that was shed 2,000 years ago really, really is applied to us today except by faith. The blood of Christ was shed for us. Now, let me just cut through all the theology and tell you that, that when a man or a woman is born again in Christ, he becomes a new creature. The Bible says all things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. He said, he says, I am a, he says, I am a new creature in Christ. I don't go where I used to go. I don't do what I used to do. I don't think like I used to think. He's changed my mind. He's changed my heart. He's changed my appetite. Everything about me. So that's why we don't just around here shake a preacher's hand, sign a card, and say, you're a member of the church. Now, that won't do you any good. But let me tell you something. The Bible says that if you are born again, you are no longer the person you used to be. Now, now let me get down to where I'm going here today. Because when you're born again and the blood is applied, now the blood of Jesus Christ now flows through us. Oh, when you cut yourself, not in the physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And so it says we are the seed of Abraham. Now, we have become the seed of Abraham. The blood of Christ is flowing through us. We become a new person, a new creature. So when is the blood applied? The theological question, is it applied when one repents? Is it applied when one is baptized? Is it applied when one is filled with the Holy Ghost? Well, some says blood doesn't make any difference. Blood makes all the difference in the world, my friend. The blood of Christ has got to be applied to your heart. Just like the Old Testament, the doorpost and so forth. So when's blood applied? Some say, well, when I repented, the blood was applied. Right? Well, when I was baptized, the blood was applied, right? When I received the Holy Ghost, the blood was applied. fact, the matter is, 
the blood is applied when a person is born again and a person is not born again until he has repented, been baptized, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost because that is Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. And so when the breath of God, the pneuma, the Spirit of God flows in you and, and, and works through the process of osmosis in your spiritual lungs, it sends the blood flowing throughout the body, throughout your veins and your vessels in a spiritual type and you become a new creature in Christ. You don't have to live like you've always lived you can overcome you say well now 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 wait a minute now wait a minute now wait a minute that means that means there's been a change in 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 the bloodline absolutely when you're born again you cross the bloodline now 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 right here i never knew my grandfather as a kid my dad's dad. He was he was the town bootlegger. They called him Obode. And any time we would go and see him, he'd get hit the railroad tracks and he'd be gone. He he'd make his whiskey and his liquor and we really never knew him. And so my dad, when he was sixteen years of age, raised around alcoholism on Tiger Mountain in Oklahoma. I mean it was a wild, wild bunch. This is this is this is who you married into, Rich, okay? All right, there's a little bit about, about your wife here. The the bloodline. You should have checked it out closer before you married her. You know, everybody has some in laws and some outlaws, you know? And so we had some outlaws, but but I mean they were just they were they all over the mountain. My 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 dad's uncles and family all Alcoholics, and they got into more trouble. My dad was 16 years old. He went to a tent, uh, to an, a brush arbor revival on Hilltop or uh, Tiger Mountain, Oklahoma, and there he repented of his sins, received the Holy Ghost, was baptized in Jesus' name, and started preaching the Word of God at 16 years of age. And so, and so, what what happened was there was a bloodline transformation, a transfusion, if you please, the old alcoholism. The old lifestyle was now broken at that when my father repented and baptized and received the Holy Ghost. And you know what? Because of that change, a bloodline, now I could have and tap into that. And I no longer have to, I no longer have to, have to say, well, you know, my, my, my ancestors and all of that, and I'm prone to, some people say, well, my mom's an alcoholic, my dad's an alcoholic, my grandparents were alcoholics, and so I'm bound to be an alcoholic. That is a lie from hell. You can break that. And it's not broken through Alcoholics Anonymous. Listen to me. Listen to me. When they tell you that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, don't you believe that junk? It is not true. Because the Bible says, whom the Son of Man has set free is free indeed. You're not a drug addict anymore. You're not an alcoholic anymore. You're not an immoral prostitute anymore. But you have been born again of the water and of the Spirit. Now, every generation, every generation has to receive it for themselves. But let me tell you, through this bloodline we're talking about, you say, well, I just, I just don't know all about this. I just, I just, I just don't know. Let me, let me, let me tell you who you're related to now. For, for, forget old Bogue in your past. Forget, 
Forget those that shot it up and drank it up and, and, and all of that. Forget that. When you're born again, that's why it's important. When you're born again, you have a new bloodline. And in your bloodline is people like Moses who parted the Red Sea. I'm telling you, there's great faith in your bloodline now. There's David, the shepherd boy, who defeated Goliath with only a few pebbles that he found in the brook. That's courage in your bloodline. You now have the blood of Samson that, uh, in your bloodline that toppled and pulled down a building. That's supernatural strength spiritually in your bloodline. You have Daniel in your bloodline that spent an entire night in a lion's den, shut the mouth of lions, and walked out unharmed. That's divine protection in your bloodline. You have Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem when the odds were against him. That's determination and persistence that pulsate in your bloodline. I'm here to tell you the point is this. You come now when you're born again through a bloodline of champions. You need to hold your head up. You need to look the devil in the eye and say, devil, I don't have to live that way any longer. I don't have the blood of sin in me. I've got the blood of Christ now flowing through my veins. Come on, let's clap our hands and praise Him. Amen, 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 amen. See, I mentioned Sigmund Freud, who was the father of psychoanalysis, and he says, if, if you know, don't, don't blame yourself. If you're an alcoholic, it's because you inherited that. If you're a drug addict or, or, or if you're addicted to something, addiction runs in your family. Anybody ever hear that? Oh, y'all, y'all hiding amongst the stuff today. Sure, you've heard that. Well, our, our family's just given to addictions, and so I'm, I'm bound. It's just the family tree. You know. Sigmund Freud was was one of the most warped individuals. He, he had so many issues. I'm not getting into all this today, but he had so many issues, he tried to figure himself out. And so the best thing he could do is to get rid of his guilt from things that he had done was, was to say, I'm the way I am because of my parents, my grandparents, and, and so So therefore, I'm not to blame. They're to blame. No wonder we have a, a psychologically mixed up and confused generation of people today because because guilt guilt is the number one problem that is causing so many emotional hang-ups and 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 problems in people's lives until people are living under this thing called guilt and i'm talking to some here today that you live with a horrendous amount of guilt and you've tried to excuse that by saying well everybody does it or that's just the way I am. Or that was so-and-so and so-and-so before me and I can't help it. And, and the whole myriad of excuses that go along. But still, but still, we, we, we harbor these things. And we carry this baggage within us that says, that says you know, I just, I just feel so bad. And so we become, we become, uh, we become stable psychopaths. We just, uh, we get to where we cannot. Well, here's what we do. We function. We learn to function in our dysfunction. And so we carry our baggage and our junk and we have it on our shoulders and we go through life like this and we learn to function 
in our dysfunction. And you know, and then we go, somebody says, have you gone to the doctor? Maybe you have some chemical imbalance in your body. And so we go to the psychiatrist or the psychologist. The psychologist psychoanalyzes us and says, I can't help you. I'm going to send you to the psychiatrist so you can get some meds. And so you go to the psychiatrist, and you know what? He, he, he sits you down and talks to you, go through all this stuff, and says, you've got this, 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 this. They'll tell you you either have uh, a one of several things. They'll tell you you either have ADD, ADHD, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, or uh, bipolar disorder, uh, or uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Come on, some of y'all relate to me now. Because you know what? They have to tell you something's wrong with you so they can prescribe some medications to you. And then they start shooting you full of all these medications until now, now nothing's bothering you. And somebody says something to you. And then when that doesn't work and you decide not to take it for one day, you're on the downer. It's the manic depressive mode of this thing. You, you either up here or you way down here. And you and you and you, and, and, and you just and you're hurt. I talked to a man last week. We went to the house. A grown man, thirty five years of age, that was curled up on the couch and crying like a Because of the of the medications he was on, my wife and I talked to a young lady. Now I'm going to tell you some of these stories to help you because somebody here today needs to hear what I'm talking about. I'm not shouting right now, but I'm talking to you. Young lady came in, college young college girl, very attractive young lady, and began to ask her what's what's going on with you, with your life, and she said, "Well, no, uh, we." She was going in until everything was fine until we got a call and said. So-and-so tried to commit suicide. So this young lady, we went to the hospital, and there she was, covers pulled up around her, her little body there in the emergency room, and and the psychiatrist was there talking with her, trying to get some answers, trying to find out what prescription she was on. And so and so we went out, and then when she came back to church, we got to talk to her. They said, what's going on in your life? She said, well, it's embarrassing to talk about. Then she began to unravel her past. And she began to talk about her family and where they live and the worst part of the city that they had come from and how over and over and over her mother had been abused time and time and time and time again. Now, a broken marriage, a, parent, a single parent family, and, and not the right parameters so the family is dysfunctional now breaking apart and now this girl this young girl is starved for attention male attention that she didn't get from a dad that was always out chasing women and having affairs and 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 on and on i'm talking to somebody today until finally she couldn't cope with it anymore she said all the problems of the family are on me so she went to the doctor they give her all these medications and she says, I hate these medications. And then she came in and service one day. My son Dave was preaching. We had, had a, a nice crowd that day. And he was preaching about the power of God. This girl over there sitting by her mother 
began to go like this. And my wife got my attention and said, she needs our help. So I got up, went over, and she was starting to lean over in church like this at the end of the, of the message. And I stood up at congregation. I said, we preach about it. Now we're going to put it in action. I want this church to come in together in prayer.